talking with Professor Kevin M. Gannon, the tattoo professor on his Twitter feed and on his website blog, and director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, and also professor of history at Grandview University in Iowa. He teaches US, Latin American, history of capitalism, all kinds of history, and is producing a forthcoming book, uh, among other projects, entitled A Continental History of the Civil War and Reconstruction with Routledge Press. His expertise in Reconstruction history led to his appearance on Ava DuVernay's Oscar-nominated documentary, 13th, and uh, he, that discusses the 13th Amendment. And he was on a subsequent interview on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman in 2016. Our main interest here is his recent book, Radical Hope, a Teaching Manifesto, part of the Teaching and Learning and Higher Education series edited by James N. Lang of Small Teaching, uh, published in 2020 by the University of West Virginia Press. Kevin is a blogger with Teaching United States History, the Tush Collective, as well as on his own website, The Tattooed Professor, History, Teaching, and Technology with a custom paint job. He will be teaching a workshop with the Hybrid Pedagogy Conference in late July on decolonization and education. This conference is perfect timing for those of us interested in the links between critical pedagogy and online teaching and Kevin's work on pedagogy and faculty development and the critique of panopticonic, if that's a word, systems of higher education is at the right time for those of us who were suddenly thrust mid last semester into online teaching during a pandemic. I'll use one quote to end this introduction, a summary of his teaching manifesto. Kevin says, my teaching philosophy is simple. I don't want to teach my students to think outside the box. I want to teach them to light the box on fire and dance in the ashes. My courses involve active learning, collaborative work, much of it digital, and as little lecture as possible. I like to think of my classes as labs or workshops where my students and I are collectively engaged in doing history. Welcome, Kevin Gannon, to Nothing Never Happens. Thanks. It's great to be here with you all. Thanks, Kevin, um, for, for being here. I'll just reiterate it. Um, I, I, of course, this, this podcast will appear um, some weeks from now once we edit it, but I, we want to begin by mentioning that we are recording this in the context of mass rebellion against anti-Black policing and systematic state murder of Black people um, in the United States. And abolitionist educators have made clear, will continue to make clear that this is fundamentally related to the state protection of white property and white wealth that includes wealth in the universities where we teach. Um, and simultaneously, as Tina just mentioned, um, this is all happening amid a global pandemic that has caused um, our universities to shift very quickly and often haphazardly to online education models. So we have the um, kind of convergence of these, these two things, which of course are, all, are related in all kinds of ways um, when we're thinking about structural racism. Um, Given all of that, I want, I want to start with a just very, very concrete question. Um, 
I want you to take me to the first week of your fall classes. What are you going to do? And what are you imagining for them? And how are you preparing? Uh, you know, the joke answer to that, although not that jokingly, is we'll probably just run around in circles screaming for a while and, you know, <laughs> is an attempt, futile attempt to process everything that's happening. Um, so my university, we are utilizing the hybrid flexible model of course preparation um, for our fall uh, classes. And I like the model a lot in the sense that, you know, in non-pandemic times, the, the emphasis on student choice and agency and accessibility really appeals to my sensibilities. Um, now, preparing in such a short time to do this is a really heavy lift. Uh, so my colleagues and I are super busy and, you know, questions of equity in terms of adjunct versus full-time faculty and compensation for preparing these courses is a really salient one for us uh, that we're trying to navigate through at least somewhat skillfully. So my first class or first week of classes in the fall is going to be if things hold the way they do now, some face-to-face, -face, some online synchronously, some online asynchronously. And because of that, I think even more so, it's going to have to be student-driven in many ways. I'm, you know, from, from the jump, it's going to be student collaboration. Um, we, I want to have students engage in the conversation about what it means to learn in this new environment, what's going to help them learn successfully, what are the things that they're anxious about in terms of maybe not experiencing at least the online mode of this, especially the course I'm teaching uh, is a first year or is primarily first year students who are enrolled in it. So these are students who have already been, you know, sort of canceled in terms of everything that they expected their last year of high school to be. Um, and so I'm trying to build a space for students who may not have had a real great experience in an abrupt shift to online education. Um, so getting their voices in right away about, you know, what have they learned from learning online about themselves, about what they want to get out of their education, what's going to help them, what puts barriers in their way, and then what are some solutions that we can use in the course uh, to try to avoid those barriers um, and, and have a meaningful experience uh, that's more than just you know, disembodied text floating back and forth across the internet. That's where I want to start. Um, my online courses usually have a lot of choice in terms of what my students uh, can elect to do uh, to demonstrate learning. There's a lot of building, there's a lot of creating, uh, there's a lot of interaction. Uh, we do a course blog, which is our main discussion forum. Uh, so emphasizing those and really getting them on there as soon as we can uh, to get into that interactive space since they're going to be attending in different modalities, I think is going to be really important. So that's kind of a rambly answer. Uh, <laughs> and I'm in the midst of thinking about all this right now. Um, but there's even more to think about than usual for sure. Yeah. Well, how did you come to um, the critical pedagogy in the first place? Because that's not the norm, you know, the sage on the stage banking model, I have a PhD, I'm the expert, is, is usually on um, the traditional mode. And in history, my experience of my history classes has been, uh, you know, con very content driven. Uh, and as student, it was uh, me as note taker <laughs> and uh, some discussion, but mainly the professor was, was steering the ship. 
So in, in history in particular, I think that's the real danger of teaching higher ed in, in this field is that there's such an emphasis on content coverage, you know, as if a student could be in the same room as the instructor, listen to that instructor talk about a whole bunch of things, and then we could say that the student has learned those things, right? That somehow just being in the same physical space and hearing things is the the magical elixir for deep learning. And, yeah. you know, and that's that's that was my experience in, in a lot of my undergraduate and graduate classes, the classes that I TA'd for. And some of the instructors I had or that I worked with were, were really good lecturers. Uh, some of them, you know, did more than just lecture. But I came out of graduate school with this, you know, that very sort of straight instructor focused method. Um, you know, and that was part of my professional identity, right? Like I was the expert and I felt compelled to sort of prove that expertise. And you know, I look back now, I'm like, man, that was really not the way to go about it. Um, mm -hmm. And what turned me towards critical pedagogy, a couple of things. First, I knew what I was doing wasn't working. Um, mm -hmm. It was unsatisfactory. Um, I wasn't enjoying it. My students were likely not enjoying it. Yeah. Um, it, it just, it, it wasn't what I thought the study of history could and should be. Um, and I've always been interested uh, in, you know, one of the things I study is radical political movements. Uh, and the more I read, and certainly as I did a field in Latin American history in graduate school, you know, that was, you know, where I approach, like I took an intro to ed class as an undergrad, I was going to be a high school mm -hmm. teacher. And so I read an excerpt from Pedagogy of the Oppressed and the class that we discussed radical pedagogies, right? But then coming back to it in grad school and actually reading the book, and understanding that here's this whole sort of cultural movement that ties in in so many ways in Latin American uh, history and culture. And what might that mean for us? And then that's what opened my eyes to the sort of the rich body of theory and literature that's happening in critical pedagogy, not just in Brazil with Freire, but, but everywhere. And it was one of those, as soon as I read those, you know, as soon as I started reading this, it just clicked. It was like, okay, I'm home. Here's, here's what it is. This aligns exactly with, you know, my outlook and, and my hopes and, you know, what I think good teaching and learning ought to be. And, you know, from there, it's trying to put those principles into practice. Okay. Did you have any faculty members in undergrad or grad school um, at Urbana-Champaign or University of South Carolina that were practicing this? Did you get to see it in practice? Uh, not really. Um, and that's the thing, you know, in small group or one-on-one -on -one situations, yeah. But, you know, when I was a TA, it was for these large lecture classes. And I do, you know, I do want to say that when I was at South Carolina doing my PhD, you know, even when I was TA, you know, I had faculty support. I was working with professors who encouraged us to try things in our separate discussion sections that could mitigate the effects of the large lecture, right? That we, you know, if we had ideas and, and ways to think about making these sections more valuable and, and, and interactive for mm -hmm. students. And so I always felt supported and encouraged to experiment. Uh, and that was a really important part of my formative experience when I started teaching classes on my own as an advanced PhD student. Then, you know, I, I'd already had a chance to kind of field test some things and mostly figure out what didn't work or what wasn't uh, is useful. Um, so, so that was a really, even if it wasn't something that we were able to do in the large lecture setting, which at a state flagship university is kind of the norm, mm. we did have support for working that into any context in which we could. And I thought that that was important. Oh, okay. 
I think one of the tensions that often comes up on on this podcast and in my own thinking about radical pedagogy is the kind of tension between the lone student professor graduate student who like discovers the radical pedagogy guru or text and the emphasis within those texts on to use language you used before um, student agency student power kind of growing some growing something new from a kind of grassroots democratic um, base. So I want, how do you navigate, how do you navigate those two pieces that I think are kind of at the center of a lot of radical pedagogy discussion, um, especially insofar as so much of the theory that radical educators use grows out of social movements? So I think sometimes it could be a lonely experience if you're in a place where, you know, you're not, you, you might be the only practitioner or the only one talking in these terms or thinking in these terms. Um, and there are times where there's pushback that comes from that, you know, whether it's from students who are a little unsettled about, you know, wait a minute, you know, we're just supposed to show up and learn stuff, right? Aren't you going to teach us? Or, you know, from colleagues who look at, you know, more radical pedagogies as, you know, hippy dippy, everybody sit in a circle and sing kumbaya, you know, this sort of character that isn't real learning or isn't rigorous enough. And so walking that path, you know, between all of those things is really difficult sometimes. And I think it's important to find community, whether it's on your campus or in your larger networks to help support and nurture that kind of growth. Because it's, I think one of the things about radical pedagogies are that they, they depend upon this sort of constant practice of radical or critical self-reflection. And it's hard to do that in a solitary place. So I think, you know, building and modeling community is a really important part of that. I think the other thing that I think sometimes, I know I struggled with a little bit, you know, coming out of a discipline like history where there's such this fetish for objectivity, when you adopt a very politically explicit stance towards the practice of teaching and learning, you run into the, at least the potential criticism that, you know, oh, you're not being objective, you're not being fair. And, you know, we have to get past that idea that, you know, A, objectivity exists, uh, but B, that, you know, we should weaponize it against, you know, certain political stances. You know, education is political. It's an inherently political enterprise. And if we don't embrace that, other people are. And so if we don't tell our story, people will tell it for us. And I think, acknowledging that, you know, to use the cliche, lean into the explicit political nature of radical pedagogies and, and invite students and others into that conversation. You know, why is this stance the way it is? Why, why am I coming from this place? Why do I think that there are ethical things here that are deeply important to all of us and the work that we're doing with one another? You can't ignore it. Uh, and, you know, so you might as well embrace it. And having that conversation and getting, you know, a, practicing this ethic of, of complete transparency with students, I think is really, really important to the work that we're doing. Yeah. Well, to get back to um, something Lucia mentioned earlier, um, how is the current political situation um, and also public health situation going to um, influence what and how you teach in the fall? Well, I'm actually teaching a course right now this summer on African-American history. <laughs> so, the course is different than, you know, we initially conceived it starting out, of course. And 
and try to be responsive to the direct connections, of course, that, you know, that history and those structures and that context um, in the way that that informs what we're seeing today. And, you know, I, I think one of the important things I was able to share with my students is that this is the first time my university has ever offered a course in African-American history in, you know, the year of our Lord 2020. And part of that comes from, we have a really small history department, but we have a curriculum that really needs decolonization. Uh, this is one small beginning step in that process, but involving the students and, you know, why do you think that is, you know, why, you know, what does that say to you, a mostly white class, by the way, that this is the way that things are shaking out curricularly. Does that matter? And if so, how? So that conversation has grown even more urgent um, over the last couple of weeks. And I think, you know, what, there's so many ways that our current context is is affirming some practices, but also really causing me to critically examine others. Um, but the importance of community and presence, um, I think, has just been completely, I mean, more thoroughly underscored that, you know, our students, in order to not just learn effectively, but learn in ways that can make them, as Frary says, able to critically intervene in their own reality, Right, that, that sort of learning can't be done in an atomized, individualized way. And as we look at teaching either fully online or in some online modalities, it is really easy for the learning that's occurring there and that learning space to be very atomized and very individualistic and students are in sort of, you know, different orbits and, you know, there's really nothing that's cohesive or, or communal about the class. And it doesn't have to be that way, but it often is. And so, in both my own work and the work with my faculty through the teaching and learning center that I direct, that's, we start with presence. We start with community and then work outwards into specific things like, okay, how do you put things online or, you know, what activities do you use? Because if you don't have that larger grounding, it's just, it's, it's not going to go well. And if nothing else, I think what we, what we see from the pandemic, what we see from the demonstrations over the last couple of weeks and, and, and the, the movement that has once again reemerged is this myth of individualism, this sort of rugged individualism, this independence. You know, look where that's gotten us in this country. Look where we are as a society. Look what we think is important and look what we've scoffed at. And boy, have those chickens come home to roost. Uh, so I, the community presence and and really pushing back against this concept of individualism and the and and the sense that we are not interconnected vitally so with one another clearly we are and not just in you know ways that center around vi you know viruses and pandemics uh, but in you know actions and reactions that are occurring across the country you know we we're not doing this alone and we're not you know, as Mark said, you know, we make our own history, but not in circumstances of our own choosing, right? So how can my students start to look at those circumstances and how they make history, make their history within those? That's, those are some of the things that are, are at the front of my thinking right now. I imagine that lots of our listeners are trying to think through what kinds of assignments, what sorts of methods of engagement can they use going into the fall. And of course, you've written extensively on venues like the Chronicle and on your blog about strategies. I wonder if you might give a specific example of an assignment that you find to be really helpful or um, 
or constructive in opening up some of those those goals that you're talking about? Sure, in an online class? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, two things come to mind with that question. And I'll preface it by saying a lot of times when we think about online education, and I know I fall into this trap a lot because I'm such a dork when it comes to technology. I love to play around with stuff. Is that we think we have to use a new tool or this new thing or this new app. And, you know, sometimes it's the simplest tools or the tools with which we're the most familiar that are also the most effective. Um, so the two things that I think are really useful to think about for online classes um, in the learning management system, a lot of us try to do discussions and discussion forums. And I've just, you know, I'm on a Blackboard campus and that threaded discussion forum is just not a very good space for students at all. It's where discussion goes to die. Um, so I have moved a lot of, of that sort of work and thinking into, you know, I created a, a WordPress blog for my course. And so we use the blog as a way to sort of process, discuss, reflect and analyze and students have roles. Uh, they sign up for weeks where they're the lead author, where they're responsible for initial posts that sort of either summarize and synthesize kind of what we've been working on in a module or take a particular topic or question or thing that they're interested in and dive down deeper, bring in some outside material, bring in some media, and then end with some questions to start the conversation that occurs in the comments underneath. And so each week we'll have two or three different lead authors, and then the rest of us are in the comments and inter interacting with one another. Um, it, it works, I think, well for a number of reasons, but not least among them is that this is the type of digital space in which our students are used to writing and engaging all the time. You know, it looks like a Yelp review. It looks like, you know, it, messaging apps. It looks, it doesn't look like an early 1990s BBS, like the threaded discussion forum does in Blackboard. Uh, so in a space with which they're already familiar and now we're engaging and communicating and interacting with one another. And since it's students who are responsible each week so for framing our agenda and, and putting ideas out there, you know, the sense of investment and in community has, has I think really has made this a much more effective space for that kind of discussion that's at the heart of a good online course. Um, so, so moving outside the LMS to do that kind of work, I think could be really useful. And then the second one is videos. Um, you know, whether it's me making them or asking, you know, giving them as an alternative for students to complete assignments uh, or to reflect on things or even to make discussion or posts on the blog, you know, embed a video if they want. So record it on your phone. I made a YouTube channel for the class, upload it to YouTube. Um, and again, all this stuff, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to do. I, you know, I don't know how to code. You know, I, have, I use WordPress templates for my websites. I don't know HTML or, you know, how to monkey with CSS or anything like that. But, it, but I've been able to do all these things in my courses with that sort of bare minimum level of knowledge. And they, they build presence. They allow students to see one another as three-dimensional people as opposed to just everything mediated through text. And I think that those things are, are really important for us to be able to do. So if you're at a place where... You know, you have a tool like VoiceThread, for example. That's a great tool to do sort of discussion and engagement in an online class, even asynchronously, where you could also use audio and video instead of just text mediation. So, you know, one of the principles of universal design for learning is, you know, multiple means of representation, right? And so if we want a truly accessible course where students can, can really connect with it, uh, in ways that work well for them, then we need to have multiple opportunities for them to do that kind of connecting and engagement. Uh, so blogging and videos as opposed to just text mediation, I think is one way for us to really get about that work. And was that uh, the two things that you mentioned one with, I thought that was- Yeah, 
yeah, blogging is one of the videos. So video responses. Um, and when students do peer review of each other's writing, for example, we'll have a Google folder and they look at each other's, but then can also record video feedback. Okay. So that's one example of videos in action that could be really useful. Okay. Well, I, I wonder, since I was thrown into online teaching for the first time ever in March, mid-March, um, what, um, I had read about it, but I'd only seen one article in the International Journal for Critical Pedagogy on, you know, Frere and online teaching, and, and that didn't really light my fire very much. Um, and so I wonder, if what would Paulo Freire say to this moment? Um, and his, his teaching was so incarnate uh, and embodied, I, I just think, I mean, I'm feeling a real, uh, it's maybe some grief in a real mm -hmm. sense of loss as I have to turn to uh, probably mostly online teaching in the fall. Um, so what do you say to those of us with a commitment to social justice teaching? And it, I, I, I feel there were some gains, some things that did happen last semester, but uh, my students had to stop working with the homeless families across the street because they were scattered to different countries and, you know, across the United States. Um, um, you know, we salvaged some things. Uh, they wrote for the uh, agency's newsletter. Uh, I just, I feel there's a, there's a real sense of loss that we're not, I mean, that, that kind of community is of course different. So can you speak to that? Because I wonder if, if Freire was here, if, would he mourn with us? Would he, what, would, what do you think? That's a great question because, you know, that gets at the heart of the tension sometimes between online and face-to-face -face teaching. Um, and I approach it as, you know, online and face-to-face -face teaching are inherently different than one another. If we get into conversations about is which one inherently better or worse, then we quickly get to a place that isn't very productive. Um, I love reading uh, the, the journal Hybrid Pedagogy online, you know, through the Digital Pedagogy Lab and the, yeah. the co-editors, uh, Jesse Stommel and Sean Michael Morris. I, I was reading a post one time where, you know, they sort of asked a rhetorical question, what would it look like if Paolo Freire built a MOOC? Right. You know, and, and it's, it's such a, a weird, you know, jarring sort of question to hear but certainly one to think about, right? So if we're gonna be in these spaces, what, what can these spaces look like to tap into the potential that, that we want to be there? Uh, so for me, one of the things where online education and social justice connect is in the realm of accessibility. Uh, and even though it's a different mode of learning for students and instructors who are used to this primarily face-to-face -face model, for other students, um, you know, whether it's differences in scheduling or disability or, you know, the ways in which they're able to access material and knowledge that are different from students in my face-to-face -face classroom, online learning can actually be a real boon to access. And so if we think that higher education is the social good that we say it is, increasing means of access and opportunity for students is a good thing. But of course, that begs the question then, you know, access to what? And so that's where we have to be really intentional and mindful about the spaces that we create in this online environment. Uh, so one thing that's really influenced me when I think about it is the question of presence and community. There's some really great research that ties into, into uh, the insights of critical pedagogy when we talk about creating social presence online. 
and a community of learners. There's a thing called the community of inquiry framework. And a lot of times, you know, the articles on it are written in this sort of very dry, passive social sciences research, you know, sort of genre. But the underlying principles that they're espousing there of student agency, of collaboration, of being with one another in community, even if that is not synchronously or in the same physical space, those are the same sorts of things that underlay to me critical pedagogy. So how can we figure out ways to bring this into the digital environment and how can we use the research that's already being done that aligns with those principles um, it is work, uh, and it's work that's different than what we're used to if we come primarily out of a face-to-face -face set of experiences. But it is possible. Um, and, and the way we have to approach it, I think, is by putting these principles before the tools. You know, so I can't say I'm going to design my online course based on the layout that Blackboard has. You know, learning management is not what we're about. These are learning management systems. Mm -hmm. So what are the tools and what are the spaces that I can use to design a class that's more borderless, for example, that embodies choice or pathways, ways for students to take the lead in particular parts of courses, to teach one another. Uh, how can we bring in material, you know, how can students also bring in material that speaks to the things that we're discussing in a particular portion of the class? And then what are the ways that we're building into that class for students to be able to critically reflect on their learning? You know, to see, you know, that metacognitive piece that's so important. You know, how am I learning? You know, what's working? Why is it important for me to think about these things? What am I going to do with these things that I'm learning, not just in this course, but beyond? How are we sort of mindfully and reiteratively, he said, uh, building this into, into our courses, building the, the space for students to do that? Those are some of the questions that I think are really important. So building a space for freedom, not domestication. Right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and learning management systems are domesticating tools. Uh, some of the software that our institutions adopt, uh, and in particular, I'm thinking of like exam proctoring services, you know, that's surveillance technology. Those are, that's, that's management, not instruction. Um, so if we're at places that are doing these sorts of things, you know, we may not be able to get the institution to stop using those, but we can make the choice to not use those in our class. So I don't use exam proctoring, although I don't use exams in my class. So I guess that's kind of a moot point, but I'm very clear about, you know, what are, you know, what are we doing in a learning management system and what are we doing outside and why? Uh, and students tend, that tends to, to resonate with students really well, you know, talk, you know, because they're not huge fans of the learning management system either in many cases. So it's, you know, what is this tool going to help us do? You know, we can all find the documents we need, for example, but what doesn't it do for us? And so let's talk about other places that we can do this work. Uh, so conversation and collaboration, again, you know, this sort of radical transparency, there shouldn't be a decision that we make in our courses about designing these learning spaces that we can't explain to students in clear and meaningful terms about how it's going to help their learning or their community. Do, 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 do.